0: Welcome back to the Love Your Story podcast. Today is Halloween, and so it's appropriate I bring to you a story steeped in the bizarre and spooky. Today we speak of zombies, not in theory, but in reality. Join me for a trip to Haiti and a dive into voodoo, magic, and the bizarre reality of real life. The word is used lightly here, zombies. In February of 1974, Wade Davis, the future Harvard scientist who would journey into the secret societies of Haitian voodoo, zombies, and magic, had his first meeting with the man who would send him on this quest to discover the plants used in creating the drugs that turned people into zombies. Today's podcast includes part of Wade's story from his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, and his astonishing journey into the secret societies of Haitian voodoo, as well as an interview with Lynn McNeil, Associate Folklore Professor at Utah State University, who went to Haiti with a film crew this past year to delve into the zombie stories and the experiences that she had there. Happy Halloween! You won't want to miss this bizarre look into the realm of zombies, possession, and first-hand experiences and discussions Lynn had with priests and priestesses of the voodoo religion are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story Power serves you best when you know how to use it. Let's jump right into Wade Davis' story that starts in 1974. At this point in his life, he was just a student, anxious and restless to explore. The Amazon was his first choice, and so he approached the venerable Professor Richard Evans Schultes in the Department of Anthropology for his advice. As he slipped onto the fourth floor of Harvard's Botanical Museum and the office of Professor Schultes, he was met with herbarium cases and photos of Professor Schultes in exotic locales. The advice Schultes gave was sparse, so without plans and just enough money to support himself for a year, Davis headed to Columbia. Schultes turned out to be a catalyst for adventure, but mostly Davis was on his own to find his own way. This student of anthropology embarked onto what would be only The first of adventures in exotic places where his life was often at risk due to jungles and rainforests, foreign and wild cultures, lack of supplies and uncharted territory, as he sought to collect plants. He had advised himself before embarking on this journey to, quote, risk discomfort and solitude for understanding, unquote. This first expedition became but an episode and an ethnobotanical apprenticeship that took him throughout much of Western South America. He earned his degree in anthropology in 1977. Following a two-year hiatus from the tropics, Davis returned. He went back to Harvard as one of Professor Schulte's graduate students. Ethnobotany meant searching for plants with medicinal properties, and collecting the plants was only part of the exploration learning from the Indians and natives of the areas they explored, were key to understanding how the plants were used. Hilties had spent 13 years in the Amazon because he believed that the natives' knowledge of medicinal plants could offer vital new drugs for the entire world. He identified over 1,800 plants of medical potential in the Northwest Amazon alone, and he knew that thousands more remained. These were the plants he sent his students to find. Late on a Monday afternoon early in 1982, Schulte's secretary called Davis and asked him to come into the office. Got something for you, Schulte said. It could be intriguing. He handed Davis the New York address of Dr. Nathan Klein, psychiatrist and pioneer in the field of psychopharmacology the study of the actions of drugs on the mind. Klein was not a small player in the field of mental disorders and chemical imbalances rectified by drugs. His research had lowered the number of patients at American psychiatric institutions from over half a million in the 50s to 120,000 in the 80s. He was no small player and this was not a trip to be taken lightly. It turned out that Davis was being sent to the Caribbean, Haiti, the frontier of death. This was the next mystery to be unraveled. As he met with Klein and Professor Lehman, it was presented this way. We hear you're attracted to unusual places. If what we are about to tell you is true, as we believe it is, It means that there are men and women dwelling in the continuous present, where the past is dead and the future consists of fear and impossible desires. They spoke of zombies. The first problem, Lehman said, is to know when the dead are truly dead. After this topic was discussed at length, Lehman concluded that there were only two means of ascertaining death and the first was not infallible. It involved a brain scan and cardiogram, things that were not available all over the world. The second was putrefaction, which required time. Klein pulled out a death certificate for Cleverius Narcissi dated 1962. He showed it around. Our problem, Klein explained, is that this Narcissi is now very much alive and resettled in his village in central Haiti. He and his family claim he was the victim of a voodoo cult and that immediately following his burial, he was taken from the grave as a zombie. Yes, he said, the living dead. Voodooists believe that their sorcerers have the power to raise innocent individuals from their graves to sell them as slaves. Some families will kill the dead a second time to prevent this fate from happening to family members. The Narcissi case was not the first to come to light, but one that was the most public. The two explained that since 1961, they had been systematically investigating all accounts of zombification. The latest was a woman, Natajit Joseph, aged about 60, who was supposedly killed in 1966. But in 1980, she was recognized by a police officer as she wandered around her home village. But back to Clavius Narcissi. In the spring of 1962, a Haitian peasant aged about 40 approached an emergency entrance of the hospital where he was admitted under the name Clavius Narcissi. He complained of fever, of body aches, of general malaise, and he'd also begun to spit blood. He was pronounced dead a few hours later by two attendant physicians. One of them was American. The body was identified, it was placed in cold storage for 20 hours, and then it was taken for burial. In 1980, 18 years after this, he returned, claimed he had been made a zombie by his brother because of a land dispute when he refused to sell off his inheritance. Immediately following his resurrection from the grave, he says he was beaten, bound, and led away by a team of men to the North Country where he worked as a slave with other zombies. Eventually, the zombie master was killed, and whatever force kept them bound to him dispersed. It was then that Narcissi returned to his village. After a clinical discussion by Klein and Lehman about reduced metabolic rate, dying brain cells, and the likelihood of a hoax, Klein noted that the precise definition of a zombie was a body without character and without will. They explained to Davis that they felt it was a drug that allowed the dead to be resurrected, a zombie poison. They wanted to know what drug it was that could lower the metabolic rate of a victim to such a level that they would be considered dead, but in fact be alive. Think of the difference, they said, that this could make in surgeries. What we want from you is the formula of the poison, Lehman said to Davis. They gave him a few contact names, a small fund that had been put aside and sent him to find the voodoo sorcerers responsible and to obtain samples of the poison and antidote with as much observation as possible. Mind a whirl with questions, foreboding, ideas, the phrase, the frontier of death was what haunted Davis the most. What lay ahead? As he landed in Haiti, the mystery just existed in the very air the thump of the city, the flow of the people. There was something electric in the air, a raw elemental energy. Port-au-Prince lies prostrate across a low, hot tropical plain and the head of a bay flanked on both sides by soaring mountains. Haiti's multitude, six million people, sit on only 10,000 square miles and they harbor a history of slavery, revolt and farming. As Davis landed, he met his contact and before long found himself experiencing the rites of Radha, Voodoo possession. The spirits arrived and mounted the bodies that they would possess, and the drums and the dancing and the fire eating left him in awe. He saw all of this firsthand. His contact introduced him to the man he would offer to buy the poison from. And after a charade of grocery lists and ingredients, collecting and creating, he walked away with a fraudulent product. As he searched for the plants himself, those that he suspected would be the ingredients, he found they were difficult to find. At one point, Davis meets up with Lamarque Duyon, Haiti's lead psychiatrist and the director of its only psychiatric institute. Dion's scientific interest in the zombie phenomenon dates to a series of experiments he conducted in the late 1950s while completing his psychiatric residency at McGill University. What he observed during the experiments reminded him of the stories he'd heard when he was younger about accounts of zombies. He recalled as well the prevalent belief among Haitians that zombies were created by a poison that brought on a semblance of death from which the victim would eventually recover. By the time he returned to take his position in Haiti, he was convinced the poison existed. In the meeting with Dion, he was passed a document, Article 249 of the Haitian Penal Code, that referred specifically to zombie poison and prohibiting the use of any substance that could induce a lethargic coma indistinguishable from death. What this really proved was that the Haitian government recognized the existence of the poison. Duyan also introduced him to Clarvius Narcissi, the real man, who had recovered from his zombification. He got to speak with him. When he shared his account, he showed a scar he bore on his right cheek, just to the edge of his mouth, where a nail was driven through his coffin. He recalled remaining conscious throughout this ordeal, and though completely immobilized, he heard his sister crying. He remembered the doctor pronouncing him dead, The arrival of the Bokor and his assistants, drums pounding, the Bokor singing. They beat him with a whip, tied him with a rope, and wrapped his body in black cloth once they had dug him back up. Bound and gagged, he was led away on foot by two men. He was passed from party to party along the road, traveling by night and hiding by day, until they reached a sugar plantation in which he would be put to work. In his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, Wade Davis shares his discoveries and adventures in this Haitian realm of voodoo. And today, I'm adding in a modern voice, an interview with Lynn McNeil, Assistant Professor of Folklore at Utah State University, and her firsthand experiences in Haiti with a film crew this year in search of these rites, rituals, zombies, possession, and voodoo culture. This is new. This is the new voice. Here's our interview. So here with Lynn McNeil, Assistant Professor of Folklore in the English Department at Utah State University, and she had the unique and fabulous experience of going down to Haiti and having some of these same experiences that we've talked about in The Rainbow and the Serpent. So Lynn, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to hear your stories. Oh my gosh, real hands on. Um, zombies, sorcerers. Okay, yes. tell me, what what were you doing in Haiti? How did you get there?
1: Okay, so I had the amazing privilege of getting to film a television pilot for a show that sadly did not work out. But the experience of filming the pilot was incredible. Um, it was pitching a show. The show was going to be about legends and sort of the, the lived experience, the real stories behind them. And we decided to kick it off with zombies. Um, and if you're interested in zombies, the place to go is Haiti. There's a lot of supernatural creatures from, that, that appear in a lot of different places in the world. Zombies, we have a point of origin. We know where they came from. Um, we know where they came from, largely thanks to the work of scholars, the work of medics, the work of people who went down to Haiti after the Haitian Revolution and spent time there and in many cases met actual zombies. I say many cases, in like two famous, famous cases. Wade Davis is the main scholar. He is the author of The Serpent and the Rainbow and his research, which I know you know about, I'll just summarize really quickly. Basically, he was interested in ethnobotany. He wanted to know if they really were making zombies down in Haiti, people who um, appeared to be dead and then could wake back up. Is this something that could be medically useful? Is this something that, that you know, the American medical institution should know about? So he went down there, embedded himself in the culture to try and understand how this process of making zombies works. But he's not the only person. Zora Neale Hurston, the folklorist, uh, met a zombie in person as well. So you get down to Haiti, you immediately start to discover this is not just legendary. This is an ongoing living tradition that is in many ways real, not in the literal sense of people are dying and being brought back to life, but in the sense that people are being brought to a state of near death for a variety of reasons. If, if you talk to people and then and then brought back to life. Clairvius Narcisse is the most famous case of this. It was all over the news in the 1980s. He died, his sister witnessed his death, American Western doctors declared him dead. Um, And then 20 years later, he walked back into his hometown. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that is astonishing.
0: So according to the Haitian Penal Code, that's supposed to be illegal. So how yes. is it that it is so um, prevalent still? Yeah, you know,
1: in the ways of so many cultures, but I think it's especially prominent in Haiti, there is what is on the books and then there is what is done. And I think I was in fact told by an Ungan, that's the, the priest of the voodoo religion, his name was Makandal, that... Any person who committed a crime, there's a big tie between the creation of a zombie and and punishment, repercussions for bad behavior. And I was told by this Ungon that you were lucky to be considered by a voodoo council for punishment if you commit a crime, rather than to be considered by the government, the actual legal institutions there. Because the the picture he was painting was definitely one of corruption— one of unfair treatment, one of the way he put it was, you know, you look like a a criminal, therefore you're going to jail, where, as he said, the voodoo councils are much more thoughtful and considered and you have multiple opportunities to either prove that you were innocent or admit that you were wrong and be forgiven or receive a lesser sentence. So
0: is it the voodoo councils or the Haitian government that um, would – give a, a verdict of, hey, you get to be a zombie.
1: <laughs> it would be the actual voodoo council. There's, it, 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 towards the end of Wade Davis's work in The Serpent and the Rainbow, he starts very slowly making his way into these secret societies. It, it seems, I certainly never, was not there long enough to make my way into them, but according to Davis and, and other folks, there is, um, it's, Haiti is just, rife with these secret societies. So, and that's kind of where the real power is. That's where a lot of this stuff happens in the in the making of a zombie. But then, you know, on the streets, I met, people, I met people on the airplane on the way over who were like, oh yeah, you'll see zombies everywhere. You'll see them walking on the streets. You'll see, you can tell because of how they walk. They sort of shuffle instead of standing upright and walking with purpose. And I began to realize that people use the word zombies in a lot of different ways. I had one um, priest who was telling me you know, t- talking to me about the United States. And he said, your country's full of zombies. You know, your your government makes them. Your government makes them by, you know, making sure everyone has big cars and lots of TV and is just kept placated. So that that seemed like a metaphorical zombie. And then we kind of got the more medical version of the zombie where a person is, is poisoned and, and kept physically subdued by various toxins. And then there was the the more supernatural or spiritual zombie where a person's spirit leaves their body and a different spirit enters it and and rides them. That's the term that's used. They're being ridden by a spirit. So there were these different levels of zombie and the Haitian people very comfortably and fluidly moved between them. And I was very clearly on the outside of understanding that.
0: So in the serpent and the rainbow, when he is recreating some of those possession um, rituals, oh my gosh, that was like that was crazy ass stuff that you see on TV. Only he's there and he's watching it, and you know the eating the the fire coals and it not hurting them, and the way the spirits—you're w- actually watching spirits take over people's body uh, in ways that yes. you know it's actually happening. Wow, yes. mind blown. So what did you it see was, when you were over there?
1: It, it was easy to believe that that is what was happening in these moments. I mean, and you can interpret it as ritual ecstasy. You can interpret it as supernatural possession. But what was happening there was so vibrantly real that that it really was mind-boggling. Um, in the cemeteries, the, the peppered rum is everywhere, and it is hot. I tried drinking some. It made my teeth feel like they were burning. Um, at one point, one of our cameramen knelt in a puddle of it, and it burned his knee through his pants. I mean, this is no joke. And then there's Haitian people pouring it in their eyes and drinking it and spitting it into each other's faces and not feeling pain at all. And, and that alone was astonishing to, to witness happen. But at one point, I actually got to be in a temple while the ceremony of the day of the dead was taking place. And it was amazing. And in some ways it was very much a familiar religious ceremony. The, the, the Ungan who was in charge of this temple was feeding his congregation. There was a huge amount of food that was present. Everyone who came that day got a bunch of food to eat that day to take home with them. It was just incredibly community driven. And yet, there was also this food there for the dead, for the spirits. And it was not symbolically there. The dead came, took over people's bodies and ate the food. And it was amazing watching these people transform from being themselves, from, you know, being a Haitian woman who's dancing into being, who was obviously a sassy, dapper kind of, you know, a little bit of an attitude gentleman who really wanted to eat some chicken. <laughs> and it was so clearly a different being, a different person that I was witnessing. At one point, one of the women who was being ridden by a spirit came up to me. I was very nervous. And I had seen a lot of other people who were currently being ridden by spirits, like high-fiving and, and, and doing, you know, interacting with other people like that. So I sort of held up my hand for a high-five and, she or he came in and gave me a fist bump instead and we sort of fist bumped each other and she nodded sort of like okay it's cool and, and moved on and then all these people crowded up and now I can't remember the name unfortunately but to tell me which spirit had just fist bumped me and I was thinking and they all knew like everyone knew based on how she was behaving how she was acting who this particular gede this particular spirit of the dead was it was amazing I've never seen anything like it <laughs>
0: How many of these kind of experiences did you have access to because you were there? so you're you're there in this realm of shooting this pilot. But because of that, you have access to things that the regular tourist would not have. Tell me a little bit about that and and kind of some of that backdoor sort of stuff that you were privileged to participate in
1: so yeah, by by being there, I told people. Because our television pilot was a little bit hush-hush. I told people who I would meet that I was a folklorist from a university, obviously, um, filming a documentary about zombies, which was not a complete inaccuracy, but which also maybe disguised some of the commercial elements of the endeavor that, that we were doing. But the biggest difference, had I simply been there on my university dime, filming a documentary, I simply would not have had access to the resources that a cable television program has access to. We had a local fixer, is what they called him, um, who we worked with, who knew local people when we needed someone to talk about X or we needed someone to get us to Y or we needed someone who knew about Z. He simply had those connections. And that was an incredible, incredible resource. I got to talk to folks from museums. I got to talk to folks from temples. I got to talk to everyday Haitians, which was amazing. We got access to cemeteries. I got not just to be in attendance at these rituals, but to have one-on-one meetings with the priests and priestesses beforehand to see their ritual spaces. Um, One of the priests that I got to visit with, um, I now can't remember his name, that's very sad, showed me his private ritual room where the bodies of four generations ahead of him were interred, kind of made into little, mannequin shapes so there was the skull of his great 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 grandfather wrapped sort of in fabric and in leather and on top of this sort of mimicked mannequin body that contained his great 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 grandfather's bones and then the next generation down the next generation down the next generation to him it was absolutely amazing and that is simply I would simply not have been allowed in that space and it was an interesting sort of negotiation of commodification too. I mean, it benefits this man's temple to be featured on television, to have outsiders take an interest in it and to be represented well. And that was something that I was very conscious of was as an outsider, as a folklorist, how can I be making sure that these, you know, the people I'm interacting with are being presented in a way that they would find not just acceptable, but maybe positive or beneficial.
0: So what kind of rituals were you, did you have access to? You shared one. What other kinds of things did you see?
1: So I spent, we arrived on the second day of the dead. Um, So there's two days, November 1st and November 2nd. And we were there for the entirety of November 2nd. And I witnessed a lot of different, a whole span, which was fabulous. Um, Several institutional things. So where I was in a temple, watching, you know, the religious leaders and the congregation take part in a ritual. But then just a lot of what I might call more folk or more vernacular rituals in the cemeteries where people themselves were bringing their own ritual materials and working magic. There are several shrines in all of the cemeteries all over Haiti. They're all above ground cemeteries, very much like we might see in New Orleans with mausoleums, only they're they're, they're much less tidy than we would expect. I saw a lot of open graves. I saw a lot of skeletons. Um, it was a, a very Culturally surprising experience for me. I'm used to cemeteries being very sealed up. This was not sealed up. But at a lot of the shrines, there were different rituals taking place, and people waited sort of in self assigned lines and positions. They would hang back while someone else was having a ritual. People would bring candles, they would bring fabrics, they would bring what we would call voodoo dolls um, and have their own personal interaction with the spirits that day. And occasionally someone who was watching, there were sort of self-appointed people keeping spaces clear, making sure the shrines didn't get crowded. They would indicate, okay, this person's asking for revenge against an ex-lover. Okay, this person's asking for so-and-so to fall in love with them. And there were, it was wonderful sort of small scale Magical practice. Old magic was dug up a lot. A lot of the magic that I saw um, Required the digging of holes and several times I would see people dig a hole and the old Paraphernalia from a previous ritual would come out of the ground and I was really worried about this I sort of asked someone. Oh, is that Messing up someone else's ritual because that stuff came out of the ground and they said no It was a really interesting worldview. They said no the the magic is in the act the mm. act of prayer, the act of burial, the act of ritual. Once it's done, that stuff's just stuff. It can be dug up, it doesn't matter. And that was such a an interesting insight into a different culture.
0: Was there a dark we... was there a dark feeling around any of this? What was the what was the energy like? <sighs> what was this? What was the spirit feel like?
1: The energy was frantic. And it wasn't frantic in a good or bad way. It was just frantic. I mean, I really felt that the idea of the spirits of the dead the gede being this is their day you know they get like a day or two a year to come out like this and and take over bodies and live a human physical experience i mean thinking about burning peppers and strong alcohol and smoke and food and fire and dirt like these are all such physical tangible sensual bodily experiences um dancing you know high fiving hugging people like it it really did feel like spirits who were ready to get out on the town for a while and that that wasn't always safe feeling um you know there was a there was frenetic energy a little bit i was very very glad to have sort of a shield of um of a television crew around me. I will admit that we also had local bodyguards, local folks who were hired to make sure that people didn't get too close, didn't harass us, anything like that. And, you know, at first I thought, wow, that's going to separate me a lot from the, the people that I'm here to learn about. And after a while I thought, no, I'm just glad <laughs> that I have that because this was, I mean, Haiti on an average day would be, a very culturally different experience for me. Haiti during the Day of the Dead was not something that I don't, I I think I could have prepared for.
0: What are the incidents of rape during that? Because obviously you come into a human body and that would be something that you would be deprived of outside of a body Mm -hmm. um, sexual experience. What- did That's you? a
1: really interesting question. I I did not see anything inappropriate take place. There was sensuality much more than sexuality. A lot of the a lot of the dancing that that took place when the spirits entered people would certainly be described as erotic if not downright dirty, but very playful, not not aggressive, not um not inappropriate in any way. There was no nudity. That, that I saw there, everyone was covered up. There were, there were lewd gestures, lewd facial expressions, and not just sexually, but with other types of appetite. When a spirit took over a body and was hungry, they didn't use a knife and fork. They were grabbing food with their hands and cramming it in their mouths. And, and these were people who had perhaps already eaten as themselves, eaten lunch already and just taking in all this more food because it was for the spirit, it wasn't for them. So there was a real emphasis on on the body, but mm-hmm. nothing that I saw that was aggressive sexually. And it may just be that I cannot imagine, You know, for all that this seems foreign and different, I, I was in some of these contexts at what amounts to a church service. And I think it would be like if we think of some form of religious ecstasy that we might have um, in the United States, it, it, you know, if, if we think about ecstatic religious traditions like speaking in tongues or snake handling and things like that, it would be rather astonishing to see, you know, a, a rape or an attack take place. I think that was a very similar vibe. Out in the cemetery, though, that, that, that could be a different story. I don't know enough, unfortunately, to know about it, um, except that I didn't witness or hear about anything. And, and I do think that the, the religious weight of the day I think would have, would have forestalled some of that despite this kind of franticness or freneticness.
0: So why doesn't the hot rum actually hurt the the physical bodies? And maybe that, you know, the original owner of the body doesn't necessarily feel it, but why this, when the spirit possesses it, um, wh- why isn't there some repercussion? Like after they burn the heck out of their eyes with this <laughs> pepper rum, are their eyes red the next day? Or is, I mean, is it just not, but, uh, you know, I things,
1: some people's eyes were red, but nobody seemed particularly, you know, ongoingly injured by any of this. It was certainly, I mean, the, the next day was absolutely clearly the day after a major crazy party. You know, people were tired, people slept in, people were bleary-eyed. Um, but no, and I, I may not have had enough experience with it to really answer that question. Um, I certainly found myself thinking like, you know, is there a, can you become immune to this hot pepper? They were scotch bonnet peppers. They were really, really hot. And, and I mean, I was able to to drink this rum and definitely feel burning, feel heartburn, feel discomfort. I would not have been able to put it in my eyes. I mean, absolutely. Without needing, you know, Emergency medical care <laughs> that would yeah, it that sounds horrible. I needed to to recover from this, and I don't know. I mean, I think clearly that is a a thing that is open to interpretation. But it was incredible to witness.
0: So, Wade Davis's experiences in the Serpent and the Rainbow, and the things that he was privy to, and your experiences what what kind of parallels did you see?
1: Um, I think. That's a good question. I got to talk to Wade Davis, which was awesome.
0: When you were Um, there?
1: Yeah. I got to Skype with him, which was crazy, um, for like an hour. And he he had so much to say. It, It was interesting. His main focus was on... The idea, and, and this I thought was very interesting. He was there as an ethnobotanist, as an ethnographer, as was I. And it was hard, I think, for a lot of people to separate his work from sort of the medical reality of creating a zombie. And so he had um, a lot of insights about the interaction between the physical zombie powder, the creation of a zombie sort of on the medical sense and the belief system of the people. And, and he was very clear on this is not just a drug that anyone could take and make a zombie. And in, in fact, it's the same, The as, as far as anyone can tell, the best knowledge we have of this is that the the most potent part of the zombie powder is the tetratotoxin, um, which comes from the fugu fish, the puffer fish. It's in Japanese cuisine as well. There's a lot of stories about um, folks in Japan eating this particular fish, appearing to die and then waking up a little while later. So sort of the same physiological pattern as the zombie story, but without the cultural belief system of punishment and raising from the dead and enslavement and all of the things that come into the Haitian zombie narrative. So, so there is that element of it, but but Wade Davis's focus, and certainly I, I felt this as well, though I did not spend nearly as much time there as he has. Um, it, you cannot extrapolate the physical reality of zombification from the belief system of the people. That's really where the impact derives from. And and I, you know, just talking about it, even with the folks I was there with, the rest of the crew. After a while, how many? real zombies would you need to witness being created to believe it's possible? Pretty much just one. You see one person who you watch die who is declared dead by doctors you trust and they come back 20 years later that that carries a lot of weight. I mean we, have, we see people you know as, as a folklorist we see the effect of, of legends and rumors that no one ever sees evidence of and that still influences people's belief and commitment to an idea. And here we have instances where maybe just a handful of times this, this powder has worked the way it is supposed to. That's enough to, to keep belief really, really strong, I think.
0: Okay. So let, let me transition back to the zombies then. So you were there and you saw the possession you worked and saw and communicated with the priests and the priestess and the Hodans and, um, but back to the zombie thing did you see did you see zombies like walking down the streets like they said that you would see them and and also with this um you were talking about the the voodoo councils actually admitting to making or you know punishing people by making them into zombies what do you know about that
1: you know Not a lot of concrete information. Most of the solid information on stuff like that comes from the past. Everything that the current living Ungans told me matched up with what Wade Davis's work uncovered. Um, I don't know if I saw a zombie in sort of the classic sense of a zombie. Um, Someone who's been drugged, someone who is being kept sedate or or suggestible or anything like that. I definitely saw the, the type of zombie of spirit possession. I mean, again, this word gets used in so many ways. I definitely understood the metaphorical zombie idea. Um, I went looking, which was an incredible opportunity for both graves of Clairvius Narcisse. He was buried twice when he was first believed to have died. He was buried. He remembered being put in the coffin. He remembered being put in the ground. He actually, when he came back 20 years later to his family, had a scar on his cheek from where one of the coffin nails had been driven through his skin. Um, and the story he told was that he had been um, zombified by a bokor, which is sort of like a bad Ungan, a sorcerer, over a priest, um, and brought back out of his grave and basically enslaved, made to work on a plantation, and escaped eventually, but was afraid to go home. The story was that it was his brother who had arranged for his uh, kidnapping, zombification, and enslavement, and he didn't think he could go home as long as his brother was alive, and after his brother died, he did go back and reconnected with the sister who had seen him die, Um, and then he lived several more years after that and died again and was buried in a different place. Um, and I went to both cemeteries. I found several graves that could or could not have been his based on the old names that appeared to be etched into them and things like that. Um, and I got to talk with at, at his hometown, the place of his second eventual burial, his real burial. I got to talk with a young Ungan who knew his family, knew the story. And, and there's just this surprising level of, Frankness, almost verging on mundanity um, for locals in telling the story, it's like, yeah, he was a guy, he was zombified, he came back. you know the the story is much more about sort of the the social issues that led up to that than amazement at the zombification itself.
0: do we not have any more current examples of zombification, just these older ones that Wade referred to?
1: Yeah, no, we don't and and I mean. Clairvius Narcisse was fairly current. I believe it was in the 1980s when he came back. So it was on television and stuff. So so that was fairly recent. Um, It'll be interesting to see if the belief requires sort of another, you know, shot of of reality to to continue on, to keep going. I mean, we in Western culture have totally taken the zombie in a different direction. Um, We now have, we, the American movies basically introduced brain eating introduced infectious bites introduced the sort of contagion model of zombies introduced the the idea of an epidemic or an apocalypse coming because of zombies because of contagion that's all straight derived from popular culture and that seems to be the model of the zombie that really resonates with us culturally today which i think makes perfect sense we do face disease epidemics, we do face the threat of environmental and social collapse. Um, the, the zombie idea, the way it is portrayed in popular culture kind of gives us a way to think about that. Uh, to the extent that the CDC for a while, their disaster preparation page used a parody or a hypothetical zombie apocalypse to give people suggestions of how to prepare for a disaster, kind of saying, if you're prepared for the zombie apocalypse, you're ready for a real thing. And it freaked so many people out that the CDC was talking about a zombie apocalypse that they had to take it down. Um, so, well, I mean, this is, this is clearly a resonant idea for us. And it, it has grown so far beyond its Haitian roots. It was really fascinating to go to Haiti and see those roots still totally present and flourishing and viable. And it was a, there's an interesting cross-section of people in Haiti. Haiti's a very poor country. Um, there are a lot of, of outsiders working there in various capacities, but everyone I talked to, whether they were Americans working in Haiti or, or native local Haitians, absolutely believed in
0: zombies. Okay. So I have two thoughts. One is if they all believe in zombies, and this is such a critical part of how their culture just functions, right? It's, it's a, it's mundane, it's known, it's a part of it. I would suspect that it's highly possible that there is a lot more zombification actually going on. Otherwise it wouldn't be, you know, if the last one, if there was, if there was a handful of them and the last one was in the eighties, um, it, it wouldn't be that predominant of a thing within the culture and within the religion. It has to be more predominant than that. Maybe just something that's kept, you know, on a secret or a sacred level because it is illegal for starters yes. and okay. just not something that is shared publicly. But that's also a little, interesting and weird because where they're totally okay with this possession and these rituals and spirits overtaking bodies it wouldn't seem necessarily like it would be something to hide so there seems to be some incongruous sorts of things between what we're talking yeah
1: i think it's one of those things that you, you have to have that emic insider's perspective to really fully be able to grasp. I, I, I was very aware the whole time I was there that there were key elements that I was missing, that I was not privy to. I'm trying to think of what maybe a good analog, a good Western analog might be. And it might actually be something like ghosts. And, and if you think about the incredibly multivalent way that ghosts come up in our culture. I mean, one on the people talk about ghosts all the time in the same way you might say so people must be seeing them all the time, right? Well, a lot mm. of people would hedge about that. A lot of people would say, well, I don't know. You know, very few of us are being like, yeah, no, absolutely straight up saw a bunch of ghosts. But so so the level to which we talk about it is not necessarily Directly correlated to the level at which we experience it, you know that's something. And then we also have different types of ghosts. We might make an internal distinguishment between, um, you know, a, the spirit of a dead relative coming to talk to us in a dream and a ghost, or like a haunted house style ghost. And we might make a distinction between sort of generalized paranormal activity that might be ESP or telekinesis and ghosts and you can imagine someone coming from the outside of our culture and sort of lumping all of these things together, the sacred and the secular, the experience and the belief, the, the nuanced different types of spirit of the dead or disembodied presence right. that, that are sort of innate to us. We understand that those are very different things. Someone coming from the outside might be that's all the same thing, you know, and, and I that's sort of how I felt approaching Haiti was I I do not have the cultural aptitude here to really be able to parse the distinctions. But I can see that there are the different ways they talk about zombies, the different ways they'd talk about possession. I was definitely an outsider. I would love to be able to spend more time and gain more of an inside point of view. It really drove home... I am much more sympathetic to someone who's really trying to make good popular media about a serious situation of belief. It is hard to reflect that nuance in 45 minutes of television.
0: No, those are, and those are great examples. Thanks for explaining it that way. Okay, final question. What was the craziest thing you saw when you were there?
1: The craziest thing that I saw was when we met up with a sorcerer, a bokor, and his assistant. At three o'clock in the morning in a cemetery to perform a ritual. And there were just other people in the cemetery, specifically this one guy. We were all in the cemetery and one of the cameramen sort of tapped me on the shoulder and pointed and I looked over and it was a a tomb that was open, as many tombs are. I couldn't see if there was a a body in it or not. Um, And there was just this guy with the white face powder of having been part of a ritual earlier that day, maybe having been ridden by a spirit, eating a bowl of rice. (laughs) just sitting kind of maybe a few feet back in the shadows of this tomb at three o'clock in the morning in the cemetery. And we had clearly just come upon him in our zeal to get to our ritual space. And he was just hanging out, that's what his night was, was sitting in an open tomb in a cemetery at three o'clock in the morning, eating rice. And something about just the casualness of that. And the, he, he watched us and, and the, suddenly the face powder made sense. It, it highlighted certain of his features and caused the rest to sort of fade back into shadow. And it was like seeing a skeletal face looking out from one of these tombs, but an animated face, a, a living face. It was, <clears throat> in some ways, that small thing was the most, the, the strongest evidence that I was in a completely unfamiliar cultural space.
0: Such cool experiences. Yes.
1: Oh my gosh. It was so incredible. I am so lucky that I got to do it. And side note, while that TV show didn't work out, I just signed on for five episodes of another TV show. So that's exciting.
0: Really? What is it?
1: Yeah. I don't think I'm allowed to give all the detail, but it's similar. It's a show about legends and monsters. Um, It's already, I think- on the books, it's already happening. It's I am not the host of this one, which I think is good. I can start small. I'm just the uh, the folklorist who gets to comment on stuff. So that was super
0: cool. Make sure you send me clips and I will. me. I'm awesome. headed out in
1: two weeks to go film for that. So Oh Lynn, yeah. that's
0: really, really <laughs> fun.
1: Thank you. It's been this this is a this is an unexpected turn for my career as a folklorist, but I love it. I want perfect. to, be able to uh, my only goal is to tell more people about folklore
0: perfect for you and you do it so well so thanks for being oh, thank here you. today to share thank your you
1: thank you for having me Lori I love everything you do and getting stories out there and making sure people know how valuable they are
0: by the end of the book The Serpent and the Rainbow Wade Davis has crossed far beyond simply finding plants and poisons. Oh yes, a poison had been found and identified, but now he found himself swept into a worldview, a cultural view that was far beyond his as a Western scientist. Straddling the cultural understandings now of Haiti, of this Voodoo culture, his research suggested that there was a logical purpose for zombification consistent with the heritage of this people and this culture invited into inner realms for which there would be no return things looked very different than they did through his skeptical eyes upon landing in haiti he said quote to be sure i had failed to document a zombie as it was taken from the cemetery but this was no longer something i deliberately sought out in the past weeks i had in fact been offered two promising opportunities to do so provided of course that the cash payment to the bokor was sufficient I had gone as far as making the preliminary contacts before I realized that the whole concept had changed. A year or two before, I would have gone ahead, emboldened by the deep skepticism I had brought with me to Haiti. Now that I had completely overcome my doubt, I found myself forced by that very certainty to turn aside an opportunity that might have offered final proof to those who still share my early skepticism, unquote. The money that the party in question demanded was considerable. Ethically, he could never be sure that his payment might not have been responsible for the victim's fate. And that was an ethical Rubicon he was not willing to cross. So he did not pay to see the zombie rise. But like Lynn, he records seeing firsthand the ritual possessions, lots of them. A young man moving like a reptile past the legs of naked women coated in clay. The sacrificial bull, for animal sacrifices are key in the ritual to the spirits that they allow to ride their own live bodies. The machete cuts the throat of the bull and Davis finishes the book, quote, I turned to a man pressed close beside me and saw his arm riddled with needles and small blades and the blood running copiously over the scars of past years, staining some leaves bound to his elbow before dripping from his skin to mine the man was smiling. He too was possessed, like the youth straddling the dying bull or the dancers and the women wallowing in the mud." As folklorists, we observe, with as little bias as possible, the rituals and ways of folk groups and cultures. We are there to record, not to pass judgment, to learn and try to understand as best we can from an emic or outside perspective. Sometimes we tell their stories when appropriate, but most often we tell our stories of observation. Zombies have been a rampant part of popular culture in the United States, influenced by media portrayals. We have our own vision of what that looks like. Chances are your impressions of a zombie are contrived from media portrayals. But here today, we tell stories of a long held religion brought from Africa on the slave ships, and clung to by its people as a form of worship that helped the slaves of Haiti retain their cultural ties despite their removal from their country of origin, and they cling to this. If you thought zombies were just another made-up monster, maybe now you have more pieces of truth, more background behind the stories. Happy Halloween, people. May you fight past all forms of zombification in your life, no matter where you are, no matter what you believe, create your story on purpose with your own will conviction and agency may death find you alive truly alive see you next week on the love your story podcast and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app um, if you like the show thanks